And as we contemplate the area in which we live, as we contemplate our own children, as we contemplate those who have left us, may we feel the weight of this portion and call unto God for his mercy that as they reject God's Christ, so the wrath of God abides upon them. And so let us cry unto God that in his mercy he would call them to repentance ere it be too late. Good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let the Bible Speak. These programs come to you out of the conviction that the Bible is the inspired and errant Word of God. And as God's Word is therefore relevant to all of us each and every day of our lives, it is the Word that God has given to guide and direct us regarding our views of God, ourselves, and the way of salvation from our sins. However, whilst the Bible is the Word of God, that does not mean that at times it doesn't present us with real challenges. The portion we're considering today is a tremendously searching part of the Word of God. It contains the story of children being destroyed by bears under the curse of God. Such a portion brings many questions, many questions to your mind regarding the nature and character of God. This is the Word of God, though. And as we bring it to you today, I realize it may present questions to your own thoughts. And so if you'd like to discuss this or other matters with me, please get in touch. Our email address is malvernfpc at yahoo.com. If there are areas that you'd like to talk over, please leave your name and number. And I'll get back to you as soon as possible. It is our desire that in our programming we point souls to the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And if I can help you with that, uh, please do get in touch. I trust that today you will find this portion of God's Word to be a blessing to your soul. Well, please turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. We are in the opening sections of the account of Elisha's ministry. He is God's anointed prophet. Uh, we saw that as he comes upon the scene of time, he has the task of healing the waters of Jericho, that cursed city. And then we come on now to verse number 23. 2 Kings chapter 2 and the verse number 23. And he, that is Elisha, went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up thy bald head, go up thy bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel and from thence he returned to Samaria. Samaria. 
The Bible is a divine book. Whilst there are human authors, they author the Word of God. They offer those words that have been given to them by God. I suspect that if this book had been of human origin, then this story would have been excluded. You can imagine the headlines. You can imagine the words that have passed around the area. 42 young people torn apart by bears. Surely this can't be true. Surely it can't be in the Word of God. It's hard to imagine a portion in the Word of God that causes us to question the character of God more than the one we've just read. The word tear is a very vivid word. It means to rend asunder. 42 little children, as they're referred to in verse number 23, 42 children rent asunder by bears as a direct result of the curse of God's prophet. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. No matter the strength of our faith, no matter the courage of our convictions, this passage will certainly cause us to ask questions. I want to proceed upon the base of two assumptions. First of all, this passage is part of the divinely inspired Word of God. It is a true and a purposeful record. That is my assumption. This is not a time to prove that. I'm simply asking you to assume and join me within the assumption this is part of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. The other assumption is that the God in view here in 2 Kings chapter 2 is the same God that we see in the New Testament. We can't fall behind the false notion that the Old Testament God was a God of wrath, but the New Testament God was a God of love. We find the same God revealed in both Testaments. Either side of the cross, we find the same unchanging God. Zealous in his holiness, severe in his justice, and yet unspeakably kind in his mercy. We see the same God either side of Calvary. And so as we look at this portion together, we do so realizing that it does reveal certain things to us regarding God. Things to us that are solemn and searching, that we can't easily dismiss, but rather things we must take very seriously tonight. Note begin with, please, note with me the children's demographics. What I mean by that term is that there are certain characteristics that we must understand regarding these little children. And demographic, a word referring to human population and its characteristics. First of all, note that they are male. That's their gender. And the word children is the word for lads. Nothing to say. Rather, that is just a simple statement of fact. Their age, however, is more a matter of debate and uncertainty. There are two words in the text, little children, and they convey a certain image in each of our minds. We may have different images, but we have an image in our minds when we think about these two words. The word children used here in verse 23 is a very common word in the Old Testament. It's translated in various ways according to its context. It's translated as young men or child, and in fact in one other place with the word baby. It's used of Joseph in Genesis 37 when he was 17 years old. 
And he was a lad. The word lad is the same word. And at that time, he was 17 years old. Same word uh, used in 2 Kings chapter 2. And so the word can, at least in some references, refer to someone at least 17 years of age. However, in many other instances, the word is translated with the word child. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Withhold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Child is the word in those texts and Proverbs. No age is specified. And yet, when we think about the use of the rods, well, we clearly are thinking of uh, children at the younger end of the scale. Not so much 17, but certainly a good deal younger. That corresponds with the use of the word over in 2 Kings chapter 4. Turn over there, it's used here in the closest reference that we have. It's used in the verse number 18. Referring to the child, the, the Shunammite's child, and when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. Here's the word child being used here in verse number 18. And the child becomes unwell. You know the story, my head, my head. And the father says to a lad, carry him to his mother. So the word child in verse number 18 was sufficiently young that they could be carried by a lad, a youth. A lad could carry this child to his mother. And so, when considered on his own, again, we're trying to understand the age of these children, when considered on his own, the word children could refer to a large age range. However, here in 2 Kings chapter 2, we have the qualifying adjective. It is the word little that is used. The word can mean young or it can mean small. Again, we're not much further in identifying the age of these children. But it's important to reflect again upon this because many have blunted the part of this passage by suggesting it's referring to older youths. Essentially adults, 16, 17-year-old young men. But the phrase, little children, if you were to substitute the word children for young man, you could say little young men, doesn't make sense even in our English. And so from studying the words involved, you get the impression that these are children who are not all that terribly old. Age is no excuse for sin. So we've got to stop and contemplate these Jews, as we'll see, they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were saying. Uh, this is no accidental event. Clearly God is judging them for their sin. Clearly God is taking it as an act of flagrant rebellion. These actions are not excused or overlooked by God on account of age. Nowhere do we hear the words, sure, they're only children. Now, I, I want to be cautious here. There are things that children do out of childish immaturity that they will not do when they're older, but they are not themselves inherently acts of sin. It's wrong for parents to harshly treat their children for their immaturity. However, it is equally wrong for parents to excuse their children's open sin with the phrase, well, simply they're just children. 
God holds children accountable for their sin. It's a great danger in our parenting that we excuse sin against the God of heaven on the ground of childhood. If I can just say one thing at this time, can I remind you all to please pray the more earnestly for our children? And for the work of our Sabbath school and Bible club, those things that are being used, parents and the work of God here being used to teach our children the nature of sin and to point them to the Savior from all sin. So that's something about their gender, their male, their age, on the younger side, their background. Well, we read of Elisha passing by Bethel, verse 23, and he went up from thence unto Bethel. And the children come out of the city, that is, they come out of Bethel. Now, you, you who know the Bible at all will immediately find your mind conjuring all manner of things regarding this particular place. It was, of course, the place where God appeared to Jacob in his dream, the ladder from heaven to earth, the place where it was named the house of God, and that ladder that taught Jacob regarding the sole mediator Christ himself, the one who mediates between God and man. That's Bethel. That's the place in view here. However, though a place honored by God, it's a place that by Elisha's day had departed from God honoring religion. 1 Kings chapter 12 and 13, we read about the reign of Rehoboam, the king that divided the kingdom. Jeroboam was fearful that there will be a turning away, and he sets up a golden calf, the wicked altar, and he does so in Bethel. Bethel. It's from 2 Kings 2 and the verse number 10. Turn there, please. 2 Kings 10, the verse number 29. You will see that by Elisha's day, there is still this problem with idolatrous worship in Bethel. I be it from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he made his a sin, Jehu departed not from them to it, the golden castle were in Bethel. They're still there in Elisha's time. This is a place of privilege, Bethel, a place that has rebelled against God. And yet it's interesting that God's hand has not been taken away from this place altogether. Chapter 2 of 2 Kings 2, or sorry, 2 Kings 2 in the verse number 2, we have the record that there is a school of the prophets at Bethel. God's word is still there in the midst of religious compromise and confusion. There were still prophets in Bethel. God's word was still being heard. You think the parallels with our own nation, privileged of God's, knowing God's favor, and yet turning his back against God, and yet there is still a remnant of light in the midst of such confusion. I think all of this background shows the actions of the children in their true light. If you like, they behave themselves according to the example they were shown. They grew up in an atmosphere when God's word and God's prophet is despised. I believe these children are mirroring the behavior of their parents. It's the case, isn't it? When the family home despised the word of God and despised the house of God, and the children embrace that example and they mimic that example. It's a great tragedy when parents have no hunger for the word of God and the children see that and they convey that to their children. It's a tremendous tragedy when parents despise God's mercy and God's grace. And the parents 
They have no desire to honor God, to love Christ, and children see that. This is a tragic situation. A place of privilege, a place where the Word of God is, and yet a place that is marked by religious compromise, out of which come these children. Which leads on to the children's denunciation. What do they say in the verse number 23? Well, they say to Elisha, Go up thy bald head, go up thy bald head. No matter their age or their background, I believe firmly they understand what they are doing here. These are words that are full of malice and evil. There's far too much levity when these words are referred to regarding men in the congregation. That is not appropriate. This is a very serious portion of God's Word. It's hard to be clear why they refer to Elisha's bald head. Were they referring to actual baldness? Was it that he may have had less hair than his hairy predecessor, Elijah? That's very strongly the possibility. Or it may have been they were simply insulting him. Just a simple turn of phrase of an insult and a, and a reproof. But what is absolutely clear is the use of the word go up. That word, that verb is used in the verse number 11 regarding Elijah. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Here's the significance. What the children are saying is, Elisha, you go up and you go away just like Elijah. These words, go up you bald head, go up you bald head, they are words that amount to a rejection of God's prophet. Elisha, we don't want you, and we certainly don't want your message. That's what they're saying here. This is no light joking, no light mocking. Rather, the children were rejecting God's word as they reject God's man. This is no ordinary man that they are bringing reproach against. We know from the earlier part of the chapter, this man has the mantle of Elijah. He is the anointed prophet of God. Oh yes, and whilst there were many prophets in the land and the schools, the prophets are still here, we understand that there is this one single spiritual leader. It was Elijah, now it's Elisha. It points forward to, to Christ. He is, of course, the great prophet of God, the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And here the children are rejecting the one anointed of God to be the prophet in the land. The prophet he was to deliver the word of God. That's what you've got to get to. The prophet was the one who brought the word of God to the people. And the action of these children, undoubtedly learned from their parents, was a rejection of God's man, God's word, and ultimately of God himself. It's a profoundly serious matter, children. When you will not have the word of God rule in your life. Your actions are just like those of the children in this portion. A rejection of God and his word. Which leads finally to think about the children's destruction. We see Elisha's response in verse number 24. And he turned back and looked on them. And cursed them. His response is not vindictive or spiteful, but he's acting here as a spokesman of God. Notice his look. 
His first response was to look at the children. It's a matter of speculation, but I do believe that it could well be the case that Elijah looks on them with the stern look of rebuke. The look of an experienced father who he just simply looks at the children and they understand exactly uh, what is being meant. Can't be certain, but that was my, it's my impression. And therefore, could this look be a look that reflects God's patience? Here's a look of rebuke before the curse follows. Could that be the case here that we have God showing his patience that the children, if they would understand their actions, that they, could, they could turn and they could still live? Can't be so for certain, but clearly the look does not achieve its desired effect. And we then see Elisha's curse. To curse in the name of the Lord is to do the opposite of blessing the children. This is God's man delivering God's word. We understand from the covenant, those situation that Israel find themselves in, that if the people of God forsake the true and living God, then the curse of God come upon them. You'll see that in Leviticus 26, for example. You see the, the consequence of those who turn away from the word of God. And so what follows Elisha's look and curse is the judgment of God. Verse 24, And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood. This is not a coincidence. We shouldn't again try to dull down the weight of this by suggesting this was simply a, a coincidental feat of nature that there were vicious bears who just happened to appear. That's how some view this. But of course we understand that the God of the Bible is the God who overrules and upholds and controls all of nature. Jonah's wheel, Elijah's ravens, God controlling Elisha's bears. These bears wreak havoc. We shouldn't lose sight of the grotesque nature of this scene. The she-bears come and they tear forty and two children of them. The judge of all the earth shall do right. God is not mocked. Galatians chapter 6. What people sow, that is what they reap. God is here publicly demonstrating the seriousness of the sin committed. The nation turns its back on God's word. Second Chronicles 36 refers to them mocking the messengers of God and despising his word and misused his prophets. Mockery, despising and misusing the prophet of God. Oh, God is gracious and God is long-suffering. But the God of the Bible is the God who shows himself to be a God whose patience against sin is not forever. We are seeing here in this sober, tragic, horrendous, grotesque portion, we are seeing the justice of God, the same justice that placed his precious son on the tree, that was pleased to bruise his son so that we could live. We cannot turn away from this portion and still gladly run to Calvary and claim forgiveness from God's justice. For we are saved by the justice of God pouring his wrath upon his own son. And the justice that brings about Calvary is the justice that is revealed here. And so whilst it horrifies us, 
We believe this to be the Word of God. We read it with fear and trembling. But we do not read it with disbelief. The chief of sins is despising God's anointed prophet. Now, I've heard this applied in a way that I am not comfortable with. The preacher would say, well, I'm here as God's chosen servant. You reject me, you better beware of the bears. That sort of crass application of the, of the message. I do not claim, and no preacher should ever claim to be God's anointed Elisha. We are New Testament preachers. And the anointed prophet of God is Christ himself. And the rejection here of God's prophet in the Old Testament does not point forward to the rejection of God's preachers, but to God's anointed prophet Christ himself. Oh yes, there is a secondary application, for at times people reject Christ as they reject God's preachers. But that's only secondary. And so as he close, I want to drive it home to your conscience again that you beware rejecting God's prophet Christ himself. And as we contemplate the area in which we live, as we contemplate our own children, as we contemplate those who have left us, may we feel the weight of this portion and call unto God for his mercy that as they reject God's Christ... So the wrath of God abides upon them. And so let us cry unto God that in his mercy he would call them to repentance ere it be too late. This portion shouldn't he drive us, drive us to the souls of men, drive us to our knees for the souls of men. Dear people, this is your God. This is the God of the Bible. And may we indeed live in fear and trembling, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Beware a hard heart. Beware rejecting the word from God tonight. And the Lord help us soberly to reflect upon his word. Amen. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.